It's good to see everyone here today. We are in part two of uh, two weeks on what does it look like to be a disciple-making church. So disciple-making church. And we're actually going to go, uh, go to Sunday school. Anybody remember Sunday school? Anybody ever go to Sunday school before? We're going to go to Sunday school here a little bit this morning. And um, kind of, I'm going to need your help with this first question, and we're going to see what we come up with. I'm, gonna, I'm looking at the screen, guys, to see where, how far I go. All right. So I want to ask a question. Here's what I want you to think about and answer this question. We're just going to, and there are no wrong answers. No matter what I say, there are no wrong answers. So here the question is, what comes to mind when we, you hear the word church? Church. When you hear that word church, what comes to mind? Just, shoot, just shout it out. I mean, I'll, I'll hear, I'll, so I can hear you. Worship. Community. What else? Building. Shorthand, sorry. Coffee. How could we forget coffee? What else? Sunday. Okay. Prayer. All right, what else? Jesus. Jesus, thank you, Courtney. That's always the answer in Sunday school. Come on. Told you we were in Sunday school. Sorry, I'm trying to, trying to line up the screen and the thing. All right, I should just let you guys up there worry about it, shouldn't I? All right, thank you. What else? What else comes to mind when you think of the word church? Sermon. Okay, anything else come to mind? Somebody said that at first service, and I was like, ooh, pastor, wow. Now, this brings up last week, right? If you were here last week, if I am the church, we're in trouble, by the way. What did we learn? One of the things we learned last week in part one was, who's the church? I am the church, right? All of us are church. Let's say that, can you, let's, let's say that out loud again. I am the church, right? It's not just the pastor. I totally get that. Again, there are no wrong answers. We totally understand it. I just want to use that as a teachable moment. All right, what else? Anything else come to mind? What comes to mind when you think of church? Church. Fellowship. Anybody out there who's being real quiet right now but actually has an answer? What's that? Mission. I knew someone had something. Service. Did I hear service? Okay. Yeah. All right. Anything else? I'll take one more. Gift. Yeah. Okay. Good. We'll just put that there. All right. Now, let's pause and let's go to Scripture. We're going to look at Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, and as I read this, I want you to think about the practices of the church in, in this passage, right? We're in, if, you're, if you want to grab a Bible, there's a Bible in front of you in the pew holder. Um, in fact, somebody said pews at the other service. We didn't say pews, but in the pew, what we call the pew, there's a Bible there, and if you go to page 1326, 1326, that's where we're at. We're in Acts chapter 2, 
verses 42 to 47. It's also on the screen. But I want, you to, want us to pay attention to the practices of this church. So here it is. The believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the community, to their shared meals, and to their prayers. A, excuse me, a sense of awe came over everyone. God performed many wonders and signs through the apostles. All the believers were united and shared everything. They would sell pieces of property and possessions and distribute the proceeds to everyone who needed them. Every day they met together in the temple and ate in their homes. They shared food with gladness and simplicity. They praised God and demonstrated God's goodness to everyone. And the Lord added daily to the community those who were being saved. Okay, what did you hear as a practice of the church? And they're listed there. I mean, you can just look right there. there this is, I've given you a cheat sheet right here. You can just look. The answers are right there. You only have to turn to the back of the Bible to find the answers. Food. What else? Prayer. What else do you see of practice? Teaching, and particularly the apostles' teaching, right? So not just any teaching. Devotion, yeah, and they were devoted to these things, right? Daily, right, it was daily experience. Daily community, daily experience together. What else? Generosity, right? What else? There's like a bunch in there, so. United, yes, they were united. Right. Simplicity. All right, anything else? I'll take a couple more. What is it? Visible. Yeah, they demonstrated everyone, and they met in a shared public space when they met. What else? I heard another. Proceeds. Okay, shared uh, proceeds. All right, anybody else have one before I cut it off? Praise, right, yeah, that was it. And there's probably a few more in there. But here's the question, really this is just an exercise for us to see where, what's on this list that's not on this list? What's on this list that's not on this list? Daily, right, daily practice, right? What else? Simplicity, right, it was simple, Um, what else? Does coffee count as food? I guess we could count it as food, right? Right? But, you know, they're a different thing. I mean, we do see a little bit of teaching and sermon and pastor. Devotion, we don't, you know, this idea of devotion to these things, right? That's different. Um, Gifts could be generosity and shared proceeds if we bring our gifts, right? Worship, praise. So there are some things that are, and this other thing I would probably point out is this visibility, right? of the church, right? So I just want to think about that because today I want to zero in a little bit. We want to zero in a little bit about 
what does it look like to be a church, right? And what are the practices of a church? So one of the things, uh, this church in Acts went from 120 to 3,000 in one day. Think about that. 120 people, all of a sudden they have 3,000 people, and now they're trying to get organized, right? They're trying to figure out how they're going to do life together, right? And that's what's going on here. And this is really the summary. This is a summary of what happened after that, that, that sermon at Pentecost. And so this is how they formed up. Now, we know about this devotion. The first part is that they devoted, that this idea of being devoted to these things was key for this community. And I think it's key for our community today as well to be devoted, to have devotion. They devoted themselves to teaching, to community, to shared meals, and to prayer. Those are the four things that they were devoted to. Now, we know that the church throughout history is, has been consistently devoted to the apostles' teaching or the Bible and to prayer. Those have been pretty clearly marked out throughout history. For the past 2,000 years, we would say most churches hopefully have those marks. But there's something in this passage that we hear and we can sense it and we don't always know how to articulate it because of how we live in North America. And I would tell you that the way we live in North America is different than the way they lived in this time period, right? And so what's happening here is they're experiencing a pretty significant sense of community, right? You can actually kind of sense that through the whole passage, this idea of community that is emerging in this group of people, this group of believers, right? And one of the marks of community for them is this, the phrase there is all. They were in awe of God, of what God was doing, all. This word all actually could be translated fear. <laughs> is all the same thing as fear? And really, it all is a sense of fear of God or a sense of all is like, there's someone bigger than me, right? There's someone more powerful than me. And that's this idea here of all. And so what unifies, it says in the text, that the other way you could translate that is to say, all or fear of God was on every soul in this community. So what brought unity and what brought them together as a community was they all had this all of God, this all of what God was doing that, that brought them together. Paul puts it a different way in Philippians chapter 2. He says this, Therefore, my loved ones, just as you always obey me, not just when I am present, but now even more while I'm away, carry out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Fear and trembling. Same word used in that Acts passage is used here to, to just translate as fear, right? Fear and trembling. That's all again. That's to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. So what's happened is in Acts chapter 2 is they... There are 3,000 people that experience salvation. And now they're coming together to work out that salvation. Nobody is perfect. Have you, have you figured that out yet? Is anybody, have, I, have we, anybody gotten perfection yet? Because what's happening in this early community and is a part of the church is that everyone is together in following God. They were all together in working out our own salvation, fear, and trauma. We don't have it all figured out. We're not all the same people. We don't all have all the same answers. We're not all the same. But what unifies the church is that we're all on this journey together. We're all working out our salvation together. We're all trying to figure it out, right? We're trying to figure it out, how to be God's people. That's the heart of the church. And that's what brings unity to the community. That's what unites them. And you really can't have community without unity. It's actually in the word itself, right? So 
I see that this is something, there's something that disrupts this. There's something that disrupts community and from us experiencing community. I want to talk a little bit about that. I say that I would suggest to you that one of the things that disrupts community and unity is competition. When we're in competition with one another, that destroys community. When we're trying to win something, that destroys community. It does not bring unity. I actually see this in youth. I grew up in youth sports. Uh, so I grew up playing different sports in, in little leagues and basketball leagues and all these things. And so I grew up in youth sports and I grew up in a community that was kind of a, a smaller town that was becoming a suburb of a major city. And so we had uh, the whole town would kind of come out for a football game and everybody would come out and they'd, everybody would kind of pull all their resources together to go to, you know, root on the high school football team. And there was a strong sense of community there. And all the players were from that community. In fact, when I was in Little League, we, we were all developing players from within our community. But as the years have gone on, and even as I put my own kids in sports and we work with them and I coach sports, what I saw happening was I would, and this is, you're going to see a little pet peeve of mine as a coach come out right here, is that we would go play teams in other communities that would recruit players from outside their community. They would go get players from another town or another area, and they were trying to get the best players to play on their team from other places. And why were they doing that? They wanted to win. And so I, as a coach, whenever we face one of those teams, I'm like, they're cheating. They're cheating, right? Because we had developed and coached the players from our community, and now we were having to compete with players from every surrounding community that were the best of all the communities. And so it didn't seem fair to me as a coach. But see, here's the thing. What was more important than community at that point? Winning. See, when winning became more important than, than a community, that's when the community began to crumble. And anytime we put winning above community, that's what's going to happen. Whatever the win is, I mean, you get, whatever you're trying to win, you and I are trying to win, it's going to disrupt community and unity. So I, I see this, actually, I'm going to be honest with you, as a pastor, I see this as, uh, you know, when I go to a pastor's meeting, right? Well, how big's your church? How many people? How much money? Who's winning? Right? That's, the que- that's really what's behind those questions. Like, I- am I winning or are you winning, right? Are we in competition or are we actually all up on the same team for the kingdom of God? Really, that's a great question, right? And so I think about a lot of times we think about that, and when competition has come in, and we're very competitive in North American culture, and I would say that's one of the reasons we don't always experience unity and community, because we all have forgotten what's supposed to unify us as followers of Jesus. We get into winning. Now, the other thing that happened, though, notice that the, what comes out of community and what comes out of unity is crowdsourcing, shared resources. Did you see that? They were crowdsourcing before crowdsourcing was even a thing. I mean, today we've got what? How many people use Waze to come to church today? Did you? Probably not because there was no traffic, right? But you know, what is Waze? Waze is an app on our phones to get us somewhere, and we get real-time reports from other drivers. And so what we're doing is we're crowdsourcing. Or think, of, think about Airbnb is a company that doesn't own a single home but is a lodging company because of everybody bringing their resources together. Or think about... Uh, Uber or Lyft, right? A transportation company that doesn't own a single car. 
right? Because of crowdsourcing, right? That's what's happening here. And so here in the early church, we actually see this, but, we, but it's more than just kind of shared, I scratch my back, you scratch yours. It's really about bringing resource together to meet a need in the community. That's why they're doing it, right? It's not just, uh, you know, to benefit me as, a, as what we do today with our, with our technology. I actually was thinking about an experience of community that I had when I was in Mexico many years ago. I was in Mexico and we were working with and among the poor in Mexico and we were in a place uh, called a colonia. And in the colonia, we were actually in a land, these people, a group of people that were living, about 500 people living in a landfill. And we were working with them and among those folks. And at the end of the week there, they wanted to celebrate uh, us. And these are people living in extreme poverty. That's what I'm trying to help understand. And they wanted to feed us at the end of the week. They want to have this big celebratory meal. And what I knew in that meal was a lot of sacrifice. Because they had to pull all their resources together. The whole community had to pull resources together to feed us that meal. I will tell you, I still, it is one of the best meals I've ever had in my life. Not only because the tamales were the best I've ever had in my life, but because I was humbled by that meal. Why was I humbled by a simple meal? One, because I sensed community, (laughs) unity, right? Because everybody, all the people there brought their resources together to feed us. They sacrificed from their own meals to provide a meal for us. And I was humbled by that because in that moment, I had enough resources to pay and provide that meal out of my own individual resources. Does that make sense? I could have paid for that meal. But if I had done that, I would have missed community. And see, that's the challenge in North America because as we get wealthier, the more wealth we have, the less we need each other. The more isolated we become, the less we experience community because we're not ever having to share resources and come in together as a community to meet a need together. That's why I was humbled. I was humbled by the relationship. I was humbled by the sacrifice. I was humbled by the fellowship and the joy that we shared in that meal. And again, it was really good tamales, by the way. So that was good. Now, so notice that unity and community brings together people and shared resources. Now, I think in the church then, and even in the church today, what we're ultimately working for and towards is helping people follow Jesus, bringing resources together in community to help each other follow Jesus and connect with each other and do discipleship. I came across this quote, uh, I've mentioned this quote before actually from Dallas Willard wrote a book called The Great Omission and it challenges the North American church to think about, to think about discipleship and what does it look like to be a disciple in America today, in North America today. Here's what he conclu- one of his conclusions in the book, A Great Omission. I'm going to read the whole quote to you. It should be on the screen. It says that he said this, For at least several decades, the churches of the Western world have not made discipleship a condition of being a Christian. One is not required to be or to intend to, tend to be a disciple in order to become a Christian. And one may remain a Christian without any signs of progress toward or in discipleship. So far as the visible Christian institutions of our day are concerned, discipleship is clearly optional. Clearly optional. 
I don't know how that quote strikes you. It strikes me very challenging as a pastor and as a leader in the church because how we have to sit back and question, have we just simply labeled people Christians or have we made disciples? And is the church a disciple-making place? Is it a place where discipleship is made, where we come together in this shared journey of being a follower of Jesus, right? That's the idea. And how did they do that in the early church? How did they do discipleship? Did you hear it in the text? Did you hear how they did it? Daily. They met daily. They didn't just go to a service on Sunday morning. They met in their homes. They shared meals. They met in their homes. They met in a public space called the temple, and they lived out their faith every day. It wasn't for an hour on Sunday morning. That's not what they were doing. John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, actually was in an Anglican church, and people would go to church on Sunday morning in England, and then after church, he would gather them outside the church, and he formed them into societies and classes and bands. Now, societies were groups of people who wanted to go deeper in their discipleship. Then within those societies, there were what's called classes, and those classes were made up of six to 12 people, like a small group. And then even within those groups, there was another group that met called a band of up to five people of same gender, age, and marital status that would hold each other accountable to their discipleship. And they would challenge one another to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. It's interesting that John Wesley had to go outside the church, the institutional church, to do this. Actually, had to work out daily in the rest of the week with people who wanted to intentionally follow Jesus and wanted to hold each other accountable to that. So he formed these groups. And the key to those groups was this. This is how, what John Wesley said. He said, to watch over one another in Christian love. Wow. Wouldn't it be awesome to have somebody that would just look after you in Christian love? Like, wouldn't that be awesome? Just to have some other people, some friends, some other people in your life that would say, I I'm just going to look after you in Christian love. <laughs> I'm just going to walk with you in Christian love. I'm going to help you follow Jesus. I'm trying to follow Jesus. You're trying to follow Jesus. Let's get together and let's hold each other accountable to following Jesus and being a disciple in love. And it was really done in a spirit of love. And they would challenge, so loving were they that they could challenge one another, confess sins to one another, challenge one another if they saw something or challenge some teaching or whatever it was. They had that kind of relationship where they could have the tough conversation and still be loved. Wouldn't that be a great place to be? The other practice daily, did you hear it? They shared meals daily. Think about that. How often do we invite other people into our homes for a shared meal? I, I know we don't do it very often because we're busy, we're tired. And then if we're thinking about having somebody to our house for a meal, what's the first thing that comes to our mind? What's the first thing? I got to clean the house, right? And who wants to do that <laughs> after you've worked all week, right? And you've been busy and you've been running your kids around and doing all these things and you're going to say, oh, somebody's coming for dinner. It's like added stress, right? It feels like added stress to the week, right? Because now i got to clean the house. i got to get the whole house clean. Because what if they go upstairs? Or what if they go in this bathroom? Or, you know, what are they going to think? And then the other thing that's, that happens, what else is going to, now the next thing you think, all right, i got the house clean. Now what's the other thing now that's going to stress us out? What am I going to feed them, right? What am I going to cook? You know? And I think ever since baking shows came on TV, 
It's like cooking now is a competition, right? I gotta, if I, somebody's coming to my house, I gotta give them a gourmet meal, right? You know, I gotta, I gotta, like, it's the next great bake-off or something every time I go somewhere. I, now, don't get me wrong, I love coming and eating gourmet meal. If you invite me to your house, I'll eat whatever you put in front of me. But what I'm saying is that we've made even food a competition. <laughs> a shared meal is now a competition, and we're trying to impress each other. We're trying to impress people coming into our house with how clean it is. We're trying to impress people with uh, the, the, the gourmet meal that we have, right? Go back to my, the meal experience I had that I just shared you about, share with you about. We sat in the dirt in a landfill on paper plates. And it was one of the best meals of my life. Nobody cleaned anything. Nobody was cooking to impress, although they were really good tamales. But what I'm saying is that it's not about impressing people. It's not about that. Hospitality has nothing to do with impressing the people coming to our houses. Notice that what Proverbs 15, is not on the, on the screen, but I want to share this Proverbs 15, 17 says this. Better a bread crust shared in love than a slab of prime rib served in hate. Better a bread crust shared in love than a slab of prime rib served in hate. And what creates hate more than competition? (laughs) Whenever we're competing, we're just increasing hatred in our world. The possibility of hatred, let me say. So notice that the description of the meals in Acts chapter 2 was gladness and simplicity. Gladness and simplicity was the mark of hospitality. So when you think about shared meals together, when you think about having somebody in your home, think gladness and simplicity. Like, we're just glad you're here. And it doesn't have to be an extravagant meal. It could be a simple meal. It could even be takeout. It doesn't matter because it's the gladness, it's the fellowship, it's the sharing in the meal. It is the sharing in relationship and community is that what matters to the church. So community, on a common mission together, doing it daily, encouraging each other daily, and also inviting those, as we learned last week, outside of discipleship. If you were here last week, we talked about how Jesus ate with his disciples and sinners and tax collectors, and that was one of the reasons the religious leaders didn't like him, because he kept hanging out and having shared meals with sinners and tax collectors, right? So he was willing to share a meal with anybody. So we learned that last week. What does it look like to have people in our homes to share meals with them in gladness and simplicity, regardless of their background? So I want to go back to the beginning here, just as we to think about this. Anybody, was anybody alive in 1976? Anybody still alive? In, anybody here alive in 1976? Sorry, thank you for, it's a few of us. In 1976, a modern, a modern marvel emerged in, in, the, uh, in the world. It was called the Concord. It was a jet plane that went twice the speed of sound, Mach 2. It could go from New York to London in three hours. And when we saw this happen, I mean, it was all over the news and everything, we thought we had arrived in the future of aviation, right? In fact, we're seeing a little bit of that this week, right? We just put four people 
into orbit around the globe. If you, if you don't know that, well, there are four citizens, not astronauts, I guess they're astronauts now, but they weren't in NASA or anything. They, we put them into orbit for three days. I, we didn't. I say like we did it, like we did it. Oh, yeah, we didn't do it. Uh, somebody did, some famous Tesla, I don't know, what's that guy's name? Elon Musk, yeah, their company. Uh, SpaceX, sorry, SpaceX, sorry. Um, it's an old brain, sorry. So anyway, you know, we're seeing that kind of modern marvel today, right? But in 1976, we thought this was it. Like, it, this is it. This is the future of air travel. We're going to be able to get across the United States in like two hours. It's going to be awesome. Never happened. Why didn't it happen? Well, air, commercial airliners today don't even go Mach 1. They don't even get to the speed of sound. They fly fast, but not the speed of sound. This was twice the speed of sound. We thought this was it. Now, what happened was it only could carry 100 people. That was the problem. And it cost more money to fly it than they could ever make. They were losing money every time they flew the plane. So they, it wasn't sustainable from a, from a financial point of view. But they kept flying it for 27 years, even though they lost money every time they flew it. So think about that. How often did they fly the plane knowing that they were going to lose money? Why did they do that? Why did they keep doing that for 27 years? Well, it is now known as the conquered fallacy. Has anybody ever heard of that before? It's called now today, you can look it up, I think it's even an urban dictionary, called the conquered fallacy. It's this idea that, that we'll keep pursuing a failed project or idea so as not to waste the resources that have already gone into it. Do you hear that? So we'll keep doing this because then we have to admit failure. And we don't want to admit failure and all the money that we put into developing it. So now we're just going to keep doing it so that we don't look like a failure. And it was, took, it was in 2003 when they shut that, that commercial airliner down. Who was the person that made that decision? Good decision, brave decision, right? So I think about that, right? So think about the church in North America today. Or think about First Church. Are we living in this fallacy? Is the reason that we want to continue to preserve the way we've done things in the past is so that we don't admit failure? Or don't admit that it's not working anymore? Or don't admit, do we keep pouring resources and over-resources and sharing our resources into something that maybe is no longer a discipleship? We've been challenging this to rethink the church. In a couple of weeks, I'm going to travel to Tampa, Florida to uh, learn about a church and a church work and actually kingdom work called the Underground Church in Tampa, Florida. And this is a group, a network of groups, actually, not in churches or church building, but a network of groups that are discipling people and reaching out in their community and being the hands and feet of Jesus where they live in the city of Tampa. And I'm going there just to learn to see what they're doing and how they're doing it and how they're organized and all that cool stuff, pastor stuff that nobody else wants to do. But here's what they came up with. The, 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 the founders, uh, Brian Sanders and his, and his wife and a couple, some other fa uh, families, they moved a, for a year to the Philippines because in the Philippines, the church has no buildings, but it's growing and making disciples one of the, the one, a place in the world that literally is like the rest of the globe rather than what's not happening. It's not happening here in North America, but it is happening in the Philippines. So they went to learn from the, the Filipino church 
And they came back, and here's what they came up with, what they called their ecclesiastical minimum. That's a fancy word. Ecclesiastical means church, from ecclesia in the Greek. But it means this. What's the, what, are the, what are the minimum things we need to be focused on as a church? And here's the three things they came up with. Number one, to be in consistent, devoted, where do we see? Devoted relationship to Jesus Christ surrendered relationship to Jesus Christ, right? Working out their salvation. Number two, totally accountable and connected to each other. There's community. And then number three, engaged in his mission, making disciples and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. Mission. On mission. Building the kingdom of God. That those are the three things that make up a church. And I thought that was a pretty good minimalist simplicity, right? So what would it look like for us to be a disciple-making church? Here's some questions to think about today. I usually do this at the end of the service. I'm going to do it here for those of you joining online, those of you going to groups later. But here are the questions for today. Number one, what could the church let go of today and still be a church? What, What could we let go of? Number two, what do you think are the core practices for the church today? What, what, what would be your minimus, minimal, minimum or simple form of church? Number three, we asked this question last week. We're asking again this week. What shifts does First Free Methodist Church need to make to be a disciple-making church? What do we need to let go of? What do we need to say, let go of and shut down and stop doing so that we can make disciples? And then number four, What are you personally willing to let go of in your church life to pursue following the mission of Jesus? What are you willing personally to let go of so that you can follow Jesus to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling and do it together? Let's pray. God, thank you for gathering us together here today to be the church, to be challenged as your church, to be challenged to follow Jesus and to be a disciple. And Lord, we don't have all the answers. We admit that we don't have it all figured out. But we simply want to gather together. We want to create unity and community so that we can share together this journey, this struggle of working out our salvation. Lord, if we could all unify around that, wouldn't that be great for us to stop winning something, to try, stop competing for something and just simply follow you. Lord, what would it look like for us to, to do that simply, to bring simplicity back into our lives, to share a meal in simplicity and gladness with others? Lord, there's so many ways that we could be building community today. So Lord, would you send your Holy Spirit on us? Would you send your Holy Spirit to us, to work within us and through us, and work in spite of us, we pray. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.